0: In today's episode of the L&L podcast, Brandon and I have the chance to sit down with Chris Woznicki and we talk to him a little bit about the atonement. What is the atonement? We ask him, are there competing theories of the atonement? How do these fit together? Uh, are there costs or benefits to each theory? Do Baptists have a particular vision or version of the atonement? And much more. And don't forget, next week's episode has more bonus content on the atonement that we couldn't even squeeze into this one episode. So i definitely encourage you to check out this week and next week. All right, well, I'd like to welcome everyone once again to another episode of the London Lyceum where we hope to encourage deep and clear thinking. I am your host, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm alongside my co-host, Brandon Askew, and we are thrilled to have with us today Chris Wozniacki. Uh, We're very excited to learn from him on the topic <laughs> of atonement and before we go get started though, we do want to know a little bit about you Chris uh, why don't you introduce yourself to us for those who may not know you who may not be familiar with you uh, at least from your Twitter platform or your Instagram or anything um, who are you what what makes you interesting what uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself um, yeah a little bit about myself
1: so I am about to have my second child. Um, literally almost any minute now it could be any minute um it's supposed to be it's supposed to be at the end of the month but um it could be any minute so we're hoping baby will stay until the end of the month when baby's supposed to show up um and yeah i guess something interesting it's going to be a surprise as to whether it's a boy or a girl we did that for our first also we didn't we waited to find out um until the baby was born to find out if it was a boy or a girl so we'll be surprised uh, again so that's um That's pretty cool. Yeah, otherwise, um, I'm a PhD student at Fuller Seminary, studying under Oliver Crisp, working on T.F. Torrance's Theological Anthropology, and I'm approaching it kind of from the angle of atonement, trying to see um, what his Doctrine of Atonement leads us to believe about uh, theological anthropology, also what his Christology leads us to believe about that. Um, but besides my studies, I also teach at a school called Eternity Bible College, which is in Simi Valley, California. Um, and I also am starting to teach. So I'll have a few adjunct classes at Fuller coming up next spring. And so
0: that's terrific. And if anybody's out there listening, who wants to hire somebody, you should definitely hire him in the future. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm, I'm in the
1: midst of thinking about that right now, so.
0: I'm curious, just, you know, this is randomly off the wall, but do you have any favorite music? I like all kinds of things.
1: Um, I know that's kind of a whatever kind of answer, but uh, I honestly like all kinds of things. But growing up, I mainly listened uh, either to hip hop. So, like, I'm I'm in L.A., so uh, West Coast Gangster Rap uh, okay. was my thing all the way up through, like, senior year. Uh, and then I got really into Christian, like metalcore and hardcore bands. Now I kind of move between both kinds of genres, depending on, on the day.
0: Okay, that, that's what's up. I, I also love the same thing. I'm a big uh, hardcore fan myself. Mm, um, yeah, I, there's very <laughs> few of us, I feel like, yeah. at least in the Christian sphere. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I think years ago, there would have been quite a lot more. There was a time where it was really popular. Like, That's true. I would go to just whatever um, venue here in L.A. and you'd have a Christian or a, a Christian band uh, with scare quotes around that um, playing alongside of just regular common popular bands. And uh, whether it's the Vans Warped Tour or some other big venue, you'd always almost always find some Christian band. Among
0: them. Uh, warp tour, man, that's a trip. <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> um, one last introductory thing: I know you were working on the analytic theology project while you were at Fuller for a while. I mean, you may still be doing that. I'm not sure. Uh, is there anything you'd like to share as far as that goes? What, what, what did that look like? What did you do for that?
1: Yeah, so um, I actually was just
0: just I was a one
1: of two PhD students that came on initially. Uh, onto that grant. So the way it worked was that Fuller got a, I think, $2.2 million grant from Templeton in order to investigate how analytic theology might help um, people think about human nature, about prayer, about divine and human love. So with those funds, what happened was that uh, Fuller decided to pay for two PhD students uh, to come and study. So uh, they would have a four years of their studies covered, uh, at, along with a living stipend, plus two postdocs that would be there the full three years, and then one extra postdoc that would be there for two of those three years. So those postdocs are uh, Jordan Westling, um, who's over at the Creation Project right now at TEDS, uh, James Arcadi, who's a professor at TEDS, and J.T. Turner, who teaches at Anderson University. So those were the three postdocs.
0: That's good stuff. Uh, and then
1: we also brought in weekly speakers um, during the f- winter and, and spring quarter from theologians, philosophers, uh, biblical studies, um, all kinds of areas to think about
2: those three things. Cool. Cool. Thanks for that, Chris. So <clears throat> we want to just, just kind of dive into uh, the topic of the atonement. I know you mentioned your study in Torrance and I think you said um, specifically uh, his view of the atonement. So, Uh, a couple of just introductory questions. Can you just define for us the word atonement and then just give us a few uh, of the different theories of of atonement? You don't have to go into um, too much detail, but just enough for the listeners to kind of um, get their their footing and understand what exactly it is we're talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, atonement, um, I think that's a word that gets thrown around quite a lot, but I don't think people stop to think about what exactly that means a lot. So there is... I think among just people who go attend church regularly, who've been around church for a long time, some vague sense that atonement has to do something with Christ's death. Um, and if you find yourself in one of the traditions that trace their way back all the way to the Reformation, you probably have some notion that this death somehow changes our status. Uh, Christ's death somehow changes our status before God. And I think that's um, right in a lot of ways, but I. Think that's a little bit narrow and I'd want to expand that a little bit so um, atonement very broadly right I think it's captured by a verse like 1st 1 Timothy 1 which says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners um, so I think that's sort of the core of what atonement is And when we think about atonement we need to be thinking about what it means for Jesus Christ to come into the world and save sinners and how he does that so when we think about it historically uh, the specific word atonement in English, um, it, it it literally means at one minute, right? So it's about how God makes us one with himself, how he reconciles us to himself through Christ's life, death, resurrection, and I would argue ascension in some way as well. Cool. So so, that's, yeah, that's, that, that's how I would start thinking about atonement.
2: Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. So can you give us a few different of uh, the different competing theories of atonement that are out there, um, maybe from church history or some of the ones that are um, still popular today.
1: Yeah, so um, I think the first thing I'd want to mention before I jump into that uh, is that there's no um, so unlike the Trinity, unlike Christology, uh, who that have those doctrines have ecumenical forms, right? So Trinity is the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, um, Christology, the Council of Chalcedon. Both of those really set the parameters for um, orthodox belief beliefs about those doctrines um, that all the church recognizes, the church universal, whether it's Reformed churches, Roman Catholic churches, uh, Lutheran churches, whatever it might be, right? Uh, but when it comes to the doctrine of atonement, we don't have that same sort of ecumenical um, articulation of the doctrine. Now, we might have articulations of the doctrine which are specific to particular communions or traditions. Um, But when we're thinking about atonement, there isn't one single agreed upon authoritative document laying out the doctrine. So having said that, um, there are numerous theories. I recently saw somebody uh, he's a professor, Brad East. He posted on Twitter, uh, a typology of various atonements. So four different types but within those types, there were different versions, and he came up with a total of 30 different uh, theories of atonement. Now, obviously, I'm not going to cover all 30 because <laughs> that would take um, several days to probably do that. Um, but if I were to give about five, um, I, would, I would give these, as, these five as the ones that people should generally be aware of. So the first one, I would say, are great exchange views. Uh, And by that, I mean views in which Christ's life, death, and resurrection become ours because of our union with him. Um, Now, that might not sound like a doctrine of atonement. That might sound as something that's tacked on to a different doctrine of atonement. Uh, But there are standalone versions of that sort of great exchange view. The second kind of view I would lay out would be satisfaction views. Basically, under satisfaction views, um, the idea is that sin robs God of the honor that we owe him. And in light of this, God has several options, right? Either God could punish us, or he could have that honor restored. Now, Christ comes in the picture because he's the God-man, and he can render God his due. And he also accrues merit so that that merit can be given over to us. So that's very broadly a satisfaction kind of view. So we have great exchange views, satisfaction views. We also have moral example views. And on these views, God pretty much just forgives us. And then Christ's death sets either an example for us to follow, shows us the depth of God's love, or initiates some change in us in our behavior. So the idea is just forgiveness, and then his death does something subjectively uh, within us. Another interesting one um, that I think people should be aware of is governmental views. And basically, the idea is that if God is going to maintain his rectoral justice, then he has to punish sin. So he punishes Christ as a way to maintain his justice, showing that he takes seriously. And finally, the one that uh, I think is gaining a lot of traction nowadays is the kaleidoscopic view. Uh, Sometimes I like to call it the Mysterian view. And this is the kind of book, uh, the kind of theory that was um, put forth by Joel Green and Mark Baker several years ago. And basically, the idea is that the different doctrines of atonement are all metaphors or images for one thing that is atonement. However, We can't actually nail down what that thing is, so we're limited to using metaphors uh, and imagery to describe this sort of ineffable act of God that saves us.
0: Awesome, that's a really good a lot. (laughs) I mean, that's a lot. Sorry about that. No, I I think it's not just a lot, but I think it's a really helpful, I guess, uh, taxonomy of the views. Clear explanation. Uh, Summarizing it into those five, I think that's very very helpful. So as we think about these five separate views, they may not be separate in some ways, they may bleed into each other. Um, What might be some of the reasons or benefits that come with these views, the reasons that people want to affirm this, and what might be some of the challenges or costs associated with these views that people would want to shy away from or avoid?
1: Yeah, yeah. So Let me just mention a couple of those. Uh, So I mentioned the moral example views, um now, I think the the benefit of this is that it takes seriously the fact that christ 's death creates some change in us, you know um that it 's a display of god 's love, and seeing that love um has a profound effect upon us our behavior um even our own loves so I think that's that 's what it it gets right, and I think paired along with some other account of atonement, I think that's a good thing um however. I think one problem with that one um, is that it isn't actually a doctrine of atonement. Hmm. Now I know that's really a bold or sort of controversial claim to make. Um, but I believe that a doctrine of atonement needs some sort of mechanism or get needs to give an account of a mechanism by which Christ reconciles fallen humanity to God. Um, now the most common versions of the moral example theory don't actually provide a mechanism. Rather what they end up doing is, They just say that God just forgives us. He just reconciles us, right? Um, With no, nothing, no mechanism, um, just sort of by divine fiat, you're forgiven. Uh, And then we become holy because of seeing this example. Uh, So that's not actually atonement. Uh, That's just forgiveness plus something else. Um, There are other versions uh, that might have a mechanism, but those are few and far between. Also, I think the moral example view really ignores the fact that God justifies the ungodly. Now, when you look at Abelard, it almost looks like he reverses the order of salvation, right? Christ does something, and then we become, um, then we become holy or or, or our, um, virtue or we become virtuous or whatever, however you want to put it. Um, and that's sort of what saves us: is that Christ did something, and now we're sort of saved by. It being good received by the works that come out of that so um i'm not a fan of moral example views (laughs) Uh, but at least at least as a standalone view
0: yeah no i hear that but even even when you say you're not a fan of it which i think both of us would probably agree with you in that assessment um you're you're mentioning how there is actually some benefit to it um i think is a great example of what we should be doing with all theological theories is finding the good in them because i'm I, th- I would assume that there's probably very few that don't have some truth inside of them, especially when it comes to the atonement, which like you mentioned, there's no ecumenical council on it. So I guess there is some room for disagreement. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, another one.
1: Um, so let's say the moral government theories. So remember moral government theory is basically a view in which Christ becomes a penal example so God doesn't need to punish us. Uh, and in this view, God's moral government is upheld and Christ's death shows us what we would have gotten if he would have punished us. Uh, now, because God shows us justice, which is um, laid out against Christ, God can refrain from actually visiting any sort of retribution on us. Now, the issue with this is that it really looks as though Christ, who is absolutely innocent, um, is punished as a sort of mere example Mm. right so it's not that he's actually punished in our place there's no substitution going on actually uh, oliver calls the moral government theory views penal (laughs) non-substitution as opposed to penal substitution and that really just seems to go against all of our intuitions about justice Um, and it also doesn't explain how our sins are dealt with right so it does give an account of how God's justice is sort of displayed and upheld um, in the world in general. But other than that, it looks like God makes an example out of Christ and then just sort of forgives us um, without anything being done on his part. It's just sort of a divine
2: fiat kind of thing. Yeah. So you, you mentioned um, penal substitution. So um, it seems like, especially amongst, uh, analytic theologians, at least what I've I've read, that 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 penal substitutionary atonement's kind of fallen on hard times, and it's not uh, the most popular of views. Yeah,
0: Brandon doesn't like Eleanor Stump's view of the atonement, is what he's saying.
2: <laughs> so, I mean, can you just help us understand why do you think that that is um, why that view's become pretty unpopular?
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, as you rightly mentioned, there's been a number of critiques. Over the last couple decades and I would lump these critiques into two different categories. Uh, the first are what I've called subjective critiques. Basically these are critiques of the doctrine saying that we should not adopt, adopt penal substitution because of the bad consequences that fall out of this view. Um, now these subjective critiques don't necessarily critique the view itself. Rather they focus on what happens to the person who adopts such a view. Um, so the most prevalent example of subjective critiques home in on violence. So, for example, the feminist theologian uh, Rita Nakashima Brock. She's argued that PSA or penal substitution teaches innocent that an innocent person suffers quietly. Therefore, sort of the fallout of that view is that women are taught that they should be like Jesus and take their suffering quietly as well. So, like if a woman, uh, so if a wife is abused or a woman is sexually assaulted then they should act like Jesus and take the abuse in silence uh, and, and take it willingly. Um, so that's, that's a sort of um, sort of paradigm example of these subjective critiques. Not that the doctrine itself is wrong, but that if you seriously believe the doctrine, then uh, it leads to some uh, untoward uh, beliefs or actions. Um, now, I think, these kinds of objections need to be addressed in a very pastorally sensitive way uh, because there are definitely people who, um, who do read uh, scripture that way and um, who have had experiences like that. So when we articulate penal substitution, if that's the view that we hold to, then we should um, be aware of, of the way, potential ways that people might misunderstand or spin uh, the doctrine. Um, so that's, that's one of the reasons why I think penal substitution has fallen on hard times is because of these sort of subjective critiques. Um, on the other hand, you also have objective critiques. And these are critiques of elements of the doctrine itself. So P, uh, Fleming Rutledge in her recent book on uh, the atonement, I think it's called Crucifixion. I think that's the title. She lists 14 objections to penal substitution and 11 of those now she she finds most of these are not convincing some of them are more convincing than others but not all of them are convincing uh but out of those 14 that she lists 11 are objective uh and she admits that yeah some of these just critiques just fall flat once you sufficiently nuance penal substitution but i think one of the most significant critiques that has been leveled against the doctrine and one that um I think has worried me the most, although I've tried to deal with it in various ways, um, is that the view itself is incoherent. So I think the incoherence objection is one of the most significant critiques recently laid out
0: against beyond substitution. Can you talk to me about what that is? <laughs> if, yeah. know, if I'm not familiar with the incoherence <laughs> objection, what is that?
1: Yeah, so uh, briefly the objection goes like this. Um, There are a number of necessary conditions for an act to count as a punishment. So that's the first premise. There are necessary conditions for an act to count as a punishment. The second premise is that penal substitution is conceptually impossible given some of these necessary conditions. Therefore, it's incoherent to speak of Christ as a penal substitute. Now, obviously, we need to know what those necessary conditions are. Uh, And there's four of them. And these are pretty widely found uh, among any sort of um, punishment literature and uh, philosophy, so there's a whole set of literature about what punishment is, what constitutes punishment, when a person can be punished, all that sort of stuff so the four most common ones that are brought up um, are these is that punishment is hard treatment so that's the first one punishment is hard treatment. The second one is that punishment is imposed by an authority who may legitimately impose hard treatment. the third condition is that punishment is for a failure. Uh, that is somebody subjected to punishment. If they fail to conform to some standard. And finally, the fourth one is that punishment expresses condemnation of the wrongdoer. So you need those four uh, conditions in order for something to legitimately be called punishment. So now,
0: of, of those, Oh, sorry. I mean, I was thinking of those four, which one is it that people <coughs> do say is a problem?
1: That's yeah. So here? people say number four is a problem. Uh, that punishment expresses condemnation of the wrongdoer. And sometimes this is called uh, the expressive function of punishment. Uh, now, the idea is that because Christ has done nothing wrong, God can't actually express condemnation or disapproval against Christ. So penal substitution doesn't meet all four conditions. Therefore, the idea of penal substitution is conceptually incoherent. Not just penal substitution is a theological concept, but
2: just as, um, just as a concept in general. So is there another um, maybe hidden uh, objection in there that punishment <laughs> is non-transferable? Because I mean, it seemed to me that the the view yeah. that we're, we're putting forward is not that Christ is being condemned for something that he's done, but for what we've done and failed to do. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So um, I think the premise for that the expressive function of punishment um, might be the thing that underlies the non-transferability of punishment idea. Okay. So, um, yeah, we can't transfer punishment because of the expressive condition. And if we take the expressive condition to be true, um, some would argue, then by definition, you it couldn't be transferred because you couldn't condemn the person who didn't actually do anything. right? So you might uh, visit the consequences upon somebody else, but that's not actually punishment. Mm-hmm. Because okay. you're not actually expressing condemnation of that other person.
0: That's helpful. So, and I've got so many things I want to ask you. You're so <laughs> smart. Um, and you're good at clarifying all these things. Why, why don't you tell me a little bit about, are there any atonement theories that might be particularly confessional in nature? Uh, cause I know they're not creed. There's no creed that's specifically speaking to atonement, but do conf, are there confessions that specifically kind of outline this and, and following up that, aren't there any Baptist particularly unique theories of atonement that would, I guess, be lumped into that. Baptists uniquely believe this. Uh, yeah.
1: <coughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, uh, that's a good question. So, um, uh, I'll, I'll just focus on the Baptist uh, part of things. So I think, I should have mentioned this before, I think there are two legitimate versions of what penal substitution is. Um, the first one, let's just call it penal substitution, right? Just simplicit or just penal substitution. Uh, and this is the idea uh, that sinners deserve to be punished for sin. Christ undertakes the punishment for sin that sinners deserved. Because of this, sinners do not need to undertake the punishment themselves, because God's justice is satisfied in Christ's death. All right, so that's that's a really common view uh, among most sort of reformed confessional sort uh, documents. Uh, you'll find something like that. Uh, now, that's not universally the case. Uh, there's room for nuance uh, within that, but something like that seems to be what most sort of reformed confessions tend to hold to there's another version of the doctrine that also has some historical merit Um, now this version is not necessarily what is explicitly stated in um, some of these um, confessions but it's consistent with them and and the view is this Uh, it's that sinners deserve to be punished for their sin Christ undertakes the consequences for sin which if it had fallen upon sinners would be the punishment for sin that sinners deserved because of this god's justice satisfied all right so the difference between those is that uh, on the first account penal substitution simpliciter christ is actually punished on the second account uh, christ undertakes the consequences which if it had fallen upon sinners that would be a punishment but it's the same consequences Um, now i've called this one um, uh, the penal consequence view Now, most Baptist confessional documents, um, some of the most important ones that we can think about historically, require something like version one, which is penal substitution, simpliciter. Uh, For example, I'll just read um, part of it. So the 1689 uh, London Baptist Confession, uh, it says this, it says, quote, this office the Lord did most willingly undertake which that he might discharge he was made under the law and he did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due to us which we should have borne and suffered being made sin and a curse for us right so that explicitly states that christ underwent punishment that was due to us Uh, most more recently in 2017 um, the sbc passed the necessity of penal substitution resolution and that one explicitly states that the denial of penal substitutionary atonement um, is basically out of bounds. Like if you are um, going to uh, affirm the, the BFM, um, then you have to affirm penal substitution, right? There's, there's no denying it. Now, that's not saying that you can't add other elements to it, something like Christus Victor or uh, moral government, but, like, at its core, you need penal substitution. Um, However, and I think this is what's interesting, uh, I think that the 2000 uh, faith and message is actually pretty broad about atonement, right? So the 2017 really, like, tightens it, but the 2000, so the 2017 resolution tightens it, but the 2 I'm getting that backwards, the 2017 resolution tightens it, But the actual 2001 was pretty broad. Now the 2001 says, and I quote, Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying himself completely with mankind yet without sin. He honored the divine law by his personal obedience and in his substitutionary death on the cross, he made provision for the redemption of men from sin. So in practice, if you affirm um, the 2000 version without the resolution, as long as you affirm that divine justice is satisfied by his obedience and death and that it's substitutionary in some sense, then you're pretty much in line with the 2000 version. I just, I find that kind of interesting.
2: Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah. And I, well, I have several questions that I'd like to ask. But, yeah. Um, and then
1: you actually go back to the 1963 one, which some Baptist schools like um, Baylor, I believe Baylor still uses this. Um, it only says that, quote, he honored the divine law by his personal obedience. And in his death on the cross, he made provision for the redemption of men from sin. So that's even more broad. Like that's consistent with moral government, satisfaction, Christus Victor, sacrifice accounts, Eleanor's Stump's uh, recent Marian account. It's just consistent with a lot of things
2: so you you kind of um you hinted at this a moment ago but um the idea of taking multiple theories together and you kind of said that um this new addendum or whatever it is to the baptist faith and message um basically said that you had to affirm penal substitution and that you could have that at the core and then you could maybe add on some of these other um theories christus victor for example so can you talk a little bit more about what maybe practically it looks like to put down on paper or to articulate a view of the atonement that that takes these and, and kind of makes them into one? Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> in some sense,
1: okay, so I mentioned the kaleidoscope view, which I actually call, I said it was the kaleidoscope or the Mysterian view now the way joel green actually frames it i think it's more along the lines of um yeah sort of a mystery right like we can look at what happens on the cross and describe it in all sorts of different metaphors and images um but at the end of the day we can't like actually state what happens in the same way that we can't state sort of the mystery of the trinity right or how um Christ is fully man, fully God, right? Those remain mysteries. Um, we, are, we articulate them, but um, yeah, we don't sort of fully uh, comprehend them. And they would say that the same thing happens for penal substitution. Now, other people, um, not Joel Green and Baker, who I think hold that sort of mystery kind of view, um, they try to do what are sometimes called mashup views, where you take parts of one theory of atonement and mash it up with another and bring in parts of another and bring it into that. Um, And you sort of end up with these kind of Frankenstein kind of views where it's like all different kinds of parts. And at the end of the day, you don't actually know if they all fit together really well or if they work, but it looks sort of nice um, at least on paper. And then you actually start to examine it and you realize that not all of these theories are actually compatible. Right. So the most obvious one uh, is satisfaction and penal substitution. Right. So under satisfaction, uh, there's actually no punishment going on. Right. God has the option. He can either punish or he can uh, acquire satisfaction for our actions. Right. Um, so it's one or the other. There's not both. So you, in principle, you can't have a sort of kaleidoscope view or mashup view in which you have penal substitution and satisfaction. Now, you might be able to have something like penal substitution plus Christus Victor or penal substitution plus union or penal substitution plus the great exchange kind of view. Um, But you really have to sort of lay these out and almost define what you mean by them in order to see if there's any inconsistency between different views.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, especially considering how many people might be inclined to a satisfaction type view. Um, And to think, you know, the Baptist faith in the message just tightened it to, you have to affirm penal substitution. Yeah, Uh, the language is
1: is pretty strong, right? So um, uh, it specifically says the denial of penal substitutionary atonement constitutes false teaching that leads the flock astray and leaves the world without a message of a sin cleansing
2: savior.
0: Mm.
2: yeah that's pretty strong <laughs> yeah, yeah so, <laughs> I think it gets much stronger than that <laughs> yeah so don't you can't deny it
1: <laughs> you can add other things and um, sort of beef it up but you yeah. you can't leave it out right i don't think it if i understand if i read it correctly it doesn't even need to necessarily be the central thing it just needs to be part of it
0: mm. I right think. Well, man, w- we've had a great time discussing atonement. I've got like 10 other follow-up questions that have come to my mind that I want to ask, but uh, we've kind of run out of time here. Uh, and But I know that we also have uh, an excellent follow-up episode that we're going to do with you um, on the topic of prayer, which I'm really excited to discuss. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. So um, we're super thankful that we had the chance to talk to you on this topic um, and for what it's worth to our listeners you've been listening to the only confessional and analytic baptist podcast on the planet as far as i know <laughs> uh and we've we've had chris uh Woznicke, i think if i pronounced that right I hope yep, that's, that's right perfect with us today and uh i'm really looking forward to episode number two